You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommy While Muslim Podcast with your co-hosts Zeba Hassan and Uzma Jafri. This is Uzma. Assalamualaikum, everyone. And this is Zeba. Assalamualaikum. Um, guys, we have been bringing you a lot of organizations that are addressing issues in the Muslim American community that don't necessarily get talked about enough. And today's topic is also another one close to home. Maybe not for all Muslim Americans, but for a significant enough population that a whole organization, the Coalition for, for Civil Freedoms, had to be founded around it. So we're going to be talking to some of their board members. Lena Aryan is here to join us. And Kathy Manley, um, their legal director, are both here today to tell us a little bit more about the Coalition of Civil Freedoms. Welcome, Lena and Kathy. Yeah, thanks. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. Can you guys tell us a little bit about the Coalition for Civil Freedoms and the work that it does? Sure. Um, This was an organization that was started out of uh, a void, a critical void in our community, which is um, people working to combat the abuses and the injustices of the war on terror. Um, So cases where Muslims were entrapped, were targeted in unjust sting operations, were targeted for the criminalization of charity and other First Amendment activities post 9-11. Post 9-11. Okay, so this organization's pretty old then. Mm -hmm. Um, It started out sort of, there were these disparate organizations and activists and communities responding to cases in their own locations. But in 2010, uh, my father actually, who was under house arrest at the time, he was a political prisoner um, then since 2003. So this was in 2010 um, in uh, in my sister's apartment in Northern Virginia. He had heard about this organization this organization called Project Salam, which Kathy founded in Albany with other activists and attorneys, also responding to an unjust terrorism case in which an imam was targeted, and Kathy will talk more about it. And he learned about the work they're doing. Um, we had a group of activists down in Tampa, Florida, where his case and others emerged from. And so he brought them all together, human rights activists, um, attorneys, Uh, impacted family members and a former prisoner or current prisoner at the time himself um, and founded this organization. So it was the Yassin Arif case, right? That kind of brought you guys all together? Well, that's that's what got me involved. Um, In 2006, um, I was working for a firm that was representing Yassin Arif, um, who was Uncharged or was charged super unfairly in a sting opera a sting operation in Albany, New York. He was a imam Kurdish man from Iraq who came here as a refugee, and he became the imam of a small mosque in Albany. And he was targeted by the FBI. We found out later based on mistaken identity, but they they were determined to get him, and they used all these unfair tricks, including secret evidence that the judge used to tell the jury there were good reasons for targeting him, so they were afraid to acquit him, even when there was not really even any evidence in the sting operation. It was it was crazy, so it really opened my eyes to these cases. At first, I thought it was the only one, but after that, um, that's when we, found, uh, we founded Project Salam, when we started realizing that there were a bunch of other cases, too, and we were studying them, and we, we published a report 
a little bit later, but um, that was when we, in 2010, we got involved with um, Lena's dad, Samuel Arian, and started the Coalition for Civil Freedoms. Project Salam started a couple years before that. And I worked in Tampa, Florida with a group of activists there um, who are actually non-Muslim activists, primarily because the Muslim community was pretty afraid at the time to get involved in my father's case. It was one of the first major post-9-11 terrorism conspiracy cases, cases, one that the government and the attorney general at the time kind of uh, created this whole hysteria around um, that they got caught these big terrorists and so on. So um, we established this ad hoc organization with um, a woman, a professor at USF at the time, the university where my father taught, uh, named uh, Dr. Melva Underbaki and her church. She got them really involved um, along with other members of the community, non-Muslims that my parents were active with. We formed an organization down there creating a campaign to free my dad. And then we also were tracking other cases that happened after the horrific injustice um, that happened to the Holy Land Five down in Dallas and many other cases that started to pop up around the country. So do you think that your work now, because how old were you when your dad um, was first um, placed under house to, house arrest and all these so, charges? So um, house arrest came later. Um, when they were first investigating him and they raided our house, um, it really started when I was around um, 10 years old. Um the, the really bad sensationalist piece against him, the, this documentary that uh, claimed all these false allegations against him and ties to terrorism and so forth, that was when I was nine. And so I was a little bit aware of it, but not so much. Um, our house was raided in 1995. I was 10 years old. Uh, two, two years later, my uncle was arrested and detained for three and a half years under secret evidence. They kept pressuring him to testify falsely against my father so that they could uh, charge him with a crime. Of course, my uncle never agreed to, and they wouldn't tell him what evidence they had against him. And so my parents created a campaign to end the use of secret evidence, which at the time was almost exclusively used against Arab and Muslims in detention, uh, immigration uh, courts um, holding. And so there was this huge campaign. Yeah, my mother testified in a congressional hearing, I want to say 1999 or 2000. And, you know, my parents led this major civil rights campaign along with other uh, civil liberties groups to free my uncle. Eventually, he was freed in 2000 and then rearrested post 9-11 in November 2001 under the Bush administration. And they tried to flip him again to get him to testify against my dad when he refused He was deported in January 2003, um, held in solitary confinement that entire time in a federal penitentiary maximum security prison. Um, And then we thought his ordeal had ended. He was finally deported. A month later, my dad was arrested on terrorism charges and, um, you know, spent, uh, I don't you know, almost three years, over three years in solitary confinement. Uh, He was acquitted um, on most of the charges against him, Um, and two men in his case were fully acquitted. The other two, my father and another man, uh, Hatem Fariz, who's now our development director, uh, were acquitted on uh, the majority of the charges. They ended up pleading guilty to minor nonviolent crimes, just one charge, and, um, you know, served their sentences. But then they brought my father 
in the Eastern District of Virginia and tried to get him um, in another case. So that's when the judge granted him um, release from prison, and he was held under house arrest in that time. So, And then his case finally... And that's when he was with your sister, correct? Yeah. Like that's at that time under house arrest. She was in the, in the care of your... He was in the care of your sister. Yeah, so that was actually... She and I, it was our first time being roommates together in 2008. It was the first day of Ramadan, and we were excited about living together. And then <laughs> we got this call from his attorney that he was going to be released. And like, uh, by the way, with, yeah. And my brother called it's it. It's like a Ramadan bittersweet, miracle. awesome yeah. beginning to Ramadan. Yeah, it was. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So how long did y'all spend without your dad at home? Um, five you? and a half years. Um, he was uh, in detention. Yeah. I mean, can you speak to that a little bit? I'm very curious because I want to know how certain family members of mine are going to fare, you know, or are faring. Because sometimes kids aren't able to articulate what's going on. But as an adult looking back, are you able to kind of explain or describe how that felt growing up without your dad for those years? Sure, yeah. I mean, I was at that kind of awkward age you know, I was 17 years old when he was arrested. So um, I was a freshman in college. And my younger siblings were 12 and nine years old at the time. And it was really hard for them. It affected their school performance, it affected everything in our lives to not have our dad there. Um, It occupied our every thought in, you know, on any given day, it, you know, our entire life became oriented to his case in our prison visits and the humiliation that we had to suffer going to, you know, prison and all of the, you know, the restrictions and the, you know, the treatment that you get, you know, where everybody is treated as though they're guilty. As family members. As family members. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because it isn't only the, right. you know, the defendant himself at the time or the prisoner who suffers, it's the entire family. Um, and of course, he was our primary breadwinner, and so we relied on, you know, generous support from family, from community members, from anyone who cared. My mother was a teacher at the Islamic school, and she was effectively shunned um, after my father's arrest, a school that my father himself had founded. A member of the community even told her, why do you still keep coming here? Do you want to show the government that you have support? And after that, she pulled out my younger siblings and put them in public school where my little sister was bullied at the time. Kids were saying, your father's a terrorist. Um, You know, my little brother, of course, uh, you know, suffered at his school as well. Um, So it wasn't easy. But unlike other families, we made it out the other side, you know, thankfully. Um, It was bittersweet that my father was eventually deported, but he's a free man at least. Um, So I sort of, I tell the family members we work with as part of the coalition, I have a little bit of survivor's guilt where I know what they're going through and I feel their pain. Um, But ultimately, we had a more positive outcome where so many of them are still living with the injustice that befell their families. So the fact that you and Kathy have to deal um, with these types of things, obviously this is what you do on a regular basis. How has that affected the way that the two of you actually parent your own children, both being moms right now? Because, you know, part of the reason why I had started this podcast or started, I approached Uzma about this was um, I had an incident 
similarly happened to me. I was traveling alone with my kids. My son was 14 at the time. And mashallah, he's like six. He's a huge kid. He's a basketball player. And even mm-hmm. though he was only 14, mm-hmm. we didn't have an ID for him. And he, we were held at the airport because they kept, he was wearing a Northwestern shirt. We were coming back home from Chicago. And he, the, the security people were giving me such a hard time. And quite frankly, we're, we're an all-American, like literally my kids play baseball. But, I mean, we're just one of these all-American families. And it was the first time that we had had that experience. And my, my son was so confused when they ultimately, I think about 30 to 45 minutes later after they felt our, our answers were matching, mm-hmm. but I, I felt helpless. Cause I was thinking I can't fight back cause they might take him away. I'm nervous cause I'm traveling alone. And ultimately when we got to the gate, he was like, what the heck is that about? And I'm like, honey, you were a Muslim boy before, but you're a Muslim man now. Mm-hmm. And that's how they're going to see mm-hmm. you. You know, my last name is Hassan. It's a very prominent Muslim last name. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I started doing research. I couldn't find a place to go to like talk to other people about this and not understanding the helplessness I felt as a parent that I couldn't do anything. So it really does impact how I parent. And I don't have as, as, dramatic of an experience as you have or Kathy dealing with this on a day-to-day basis I can't even imagine how it affects the way you parent your children right now for me it's not I mean I'm not Muslim my kids haven't been threatened by by this situation um but only there was sometimes this feeling like I cared more about Yassine's family than my family because I was putting so much time in and I had like a picture of Yassine's family the first time they saw him because he was in a communication management unit. He wasn't able to see his family for several years without, there were no contact visits and they they couldn't deal with the phone visits. So they they didn't see him for several years. And so the first time that they went, they were able to see him in a contact visit when he got out of the CMU, the communication management unit. He was still in prison, but they were able to hug him and I happened to be able to be there. And so I had a photo of that and I was so moved by that. I used that as my desktop. From some of what I was reading quickly, uh, Lena, it was um, like your dad refused to become an informant. And so, you know, it seems like a lot of what ended up happening to him was punitive from our government because he wouldn't inform or make up stuff about people. And, you know, I get it before... um, I, I, I understand before conviction where they can try to do that to you, where they want they want to recruit you to be an informant, or now charges have been brought against you, and now they want you to inform against your you know supposed uh, accomplices. In the case of Ibrahim Muhammad, where it was these four gentlemen who were accused, um, it seemed that the prosecutor was wanting them to talk about you know to to implicate the others. It's a very very common tactic and it, and perfectly it's legal right Kathy? where people were yeah yeah definitely legal it's, the whole it's legal to do it it's so messed up <laughs> yeah that's one of the abuses that we've discovered in studying these cases and it's really common in a lot of these cases what the government does is file for a protective order under the classified information procedures act and that way they get to give a whole bunch of secret evidence to the judge and the defense attorney doesn't even get to see it in many cases. And that's exactly what happened in our case in Albany. Uh-huh. And they gave the judge a whole bunch of information saying that Yassine is a bad guy in some way. We found out later that it was mistaken identity. They were saying he was 
an Al-Qaeda operative named Mohammed Yassin. Oh, God. And, and that person was killed in 2010. It's clearly not Yassin. Oh, my gosh. And yet this caused the judge to um, make many rulings against Yassin, including telling the jury that there were good and valid re reasons for targeting Yassin. So when you hear that from the judge, of course, even though there's no evidence, you're yeah. afraid to acquit. Yeah. And so even though the lead trial attorney, my boss at the time, Terry Kinlan, he got a security clearance for the sole purpose of seeing this evidence. He never got to see any of it because the way the law works is you only get to see it if the judge looks oh, at it and says it's favorable to the defense, right? So under the Sixth Amendment, you're supposed to be able to confront evidence against you and see, you know, if it's false or not, like challenge it, investigate it, right? We could have shown it was false, but it doesn't look favorable if you don't investigate it. So that's, I think it, it's a huge Sixth Amendment violation, but it's been upheld. And so we're actually trying to change the law. Um, we're trying to get a bill to move forward in Congress. And that's one of the things it would do is to say that that classified evidence that's given to the judge has to be able to give be given to the defense attorney if they have a security clearance. It sounds like a no brainer, but it's not the way it works now. Yeah. And, and a couple of other things um, we're asking for to actually create a real entrapment defense in the law where you have to be actually trying to do something other than just saying things, you know, that's First Amendment protected speech, like, uh -huh, oh, somebody uh -huh. should do something about this or that. And that shouldn't be enough to get an informant to manipulate you into, you know, saying something worse into yeah. a plot. There should have to be um, steps that you're actually trying to do something before an informant can start manipulating you, coercing you, offering you money, all the things they do. Uh -huh. I'm like really petrified that there's twelve to thirteen thousand informants still employed by the federal government. Yeah, and there's there's a difference between an informant who's just meeting with the FBI and telling giving them information mm -hmm. versus an informant who's wearing a wire and pretending to be somebody else and trying to manipulate somebody. Those are two different kinds of informants. Mm -hmm. So um, the large number includes all of them, I guess. So yeah. there's not that many that are willing to wear wires. Right. Usually it's when the government has leverage over them or gives them a whole lot of money, um, but not too many people want to do that. That's why they keep using some of the same ones over, even though they're really compromised. With current events right now, the way that things are happening in India, the only reason I bring it up is because it's another democracy where freedom of speech is supposedly protected, and this whole denaturalization process is happening. Um, or there's this threat, and that's why these protests are, are being lit up. And, you know, with Zeba and I having roots over on the subcontinent, I think um, we're a little bit sensitive to what's going on over there. Is that a real threat over here? Because we've heard rumors of people who have been naturalized citizens of America losing their citizenship. Can CCF like yeah. talk about that? It is a real threat in some cases. In, in cases where people are naturalized citizens and then they get convicted in one of these terrorism cases, usually fake terrorism cases, if there's any way that the government can argue that their citizenship was brought about fraudulently, like one example is if the government can prove or claim that they were a member of some organization that they didn't write down on their um, application for citizenship or green card then they may be able to use that to denaturalize them. And that's happened in several cases. And there's a lot of other cases where people were citizens for a long time and there's no way they can 
go after that. So it depends on the case, whether there's a way the government can try to go after denaturalization of people based on how they got their citizenship and if there was any way they can argue that that was fraudulent. And they definitely look for it and try to do it in these cases. So, you know, it is a threat. Um, but it, a lot of times people, if you're born here, you don't have to worry about it. If you became a citizen a long time ago, or if there's just, you know, you were totally honest about it and there's no way they can go after it. So it depends on the case, but it's definitely a threat in some situations, unfortunately. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. But I mean, I try to tell people, you know, because a lot of the people that I hang out with are immigrants. And um, some of them haven't been naturalized yet. And I'm like, don't you understand? If we don't say something, you're going to be deported. Like, you are, you're going to go away. I'll be fine, you know? But I'm being loud for you because I was born by accident on U.S. soil. You don't have that advantage, and the government can come after you. And people are like, oh, no, no, that can't happen. I'm going to vote this way because this is good for our country. And I'm like, don't you understand? This is going to break up your family, potentially, um, for many, many reasons. And people people think that I'm lying. And so I was like, let me get it from an expert. Like, is denaturalization possible? So you're saying yes, which is scary. And I hope people come to the CCF website Um to read about some of these cases that you guys are involved in, the real threat of entrapment, how y'all support families um, who have a member uh, as a political prisoner in the U.S. federal prison system. And I I hope that we get to hear more from you guys, success stories. That would be awesome to have you back again to talk about that. That would be great. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today, guys. Assalamualaikum. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzma on Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Momming While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.